I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, for how long, Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. Second reading is Matthew chapter 11, 16 to the end of the chapter, and then 4 to 11. 1 to 11. Sorry, Matthew 3. I don't know what I said, but Matthew 3. But that's right. <laughs> as soon as Jesus was baptised, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these sons to stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said. If you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended to him. The third reading is Revelations chapter 4, 1 to 11.
After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumbles and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the centre, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes, in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay down their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Steph. There we are. Well, today, as Helen announced, we start a short four-week series on uh, the book of Revelation. And uh, that statement is perhaps likely to have prompted some kind of relatively strong reaction in your mind. Maybe, oh no. Uh, Or, um, here we go again. Uh, Or, yippee. Or any of them. I don't know. The book of Revelation does tend to provoke strong responses. As someone once wrote, the book of Revelation has the reputation of being difficult to read and hard to understand. But in fact, it is hardly read and not that difficult to understand. The word revelation is a literal translation of the Greek word apocalypse, the noun from the verb apokalypso, which means to reveal. That's a little bit confusing for us because the word apocalypse in our English language now has come to mean a scenario in which the world ends. So then an apocalyptic battle in everyday usage refers to some kind of global battle so big that it might destroy the earth. However, in the ancient world, apocalypse meant a particular type of literature, a certain style of writing that was popular for about 600 years, from roughly 400 BC to around 200 AD. 
It was a style of literature that flourished at the time of massive global empires. The Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian, Persian, Greek, Roman Empire. Now, huge empires weren't necessarily something entirely new. Egypt, for example, had been a superpower for centuries earlier. But for much of biblical history, the times of the kings of Israel and Judah, war and politics were something that felt much closer to home. Regional calamities rather than global ones. Your enemies were your neighbors. Moab, Edom, the Philistines, Syria. And they were about the same size as you, more or less. But during the time that we're talking about, new superpowers came into existence. Uh, superpowers that were countries unimaginably far away. Babylon. Persia, Greece, Rome. And their armies were vastly bigger than anything a single nation might ever be able to field or muster. And the agenda wasn't just local conquest and pillage of resources, but it was some global vision of taking over the entire world. Far away emperors who were anti-God, and anti-God's people, and who wanted to rule the world and demanded that they be worshipped as a God, demanded the worship that only God might demand and expect. And so the style of literature, literature that came to be known as apocalypse employed symbols in order that frightened and embattled communities could communicate confidently without the powers, in, um, the powers that be knowing what was being said. Apocalyptic literature, therefore, is coded literature requiring a cipher in order to break the code. And the cipher is usually, in essence, your shared cultural and literary history. Um, so, for example, in the book of Revelation, beasts usually, not always, but beasts usually symbolize Gentile kings and rulers, just as they do in the books of Ezekiel and Daniel. A beast with seven heads and yet also ten horns is difficult for us to imagine or picture, yet they are simply actually ways of just talking about politics without them knowing that they're being talked about. Well, that's our style of literature. Our author is John, the Apostle John, the brother of James, the son of Zebedee, the beloved disciple of the fourth gospel, the author also of three epistles in the New Testament. And John is now not where he wants to be, which is Ephesus, his adopted hometown where he is the pastor and elder of the church. But rather than being in Ephesus where he wants to be, he's on a small and probably fairly desolate island, the island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea, which is part of the Mediterranean, about 40 miles southwest of the city of Ephesus. And there, uh, um, possibly a prisoner 
of the Roman authorities. But either way, he's there because he's had to flee. He's there because he's being persecuted. He's there because he's a Christian. He's there because Christians are being persecuted at this time, sometime around the end of the first century. Roman persecution of the Christian church is just getting warmed up. And they're starting with the leaders. John himself is victim to forces wildly more powerful than he is. And how is he, therefore, to understand such blind, reckless hate, such overwhelming evil? Well, John is writing a letter to seven churches in the Roman province of Asia, an area that today we call Turkey. John begins his letter with specific messages to each of those seven churches. The churches of, first, Ephesus, and then Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And we looked at those letters in a series of six sermons back in 2019. All seven of them, these are churches in trouble. They are churches that are variously experiencing victimization and persecution from outsiders, or they've drifted into some kind of faithful lovelessness, or they've been deceived by false teaching and false prophets and deceived into really bad behavior. Or they've lapsed into lifeless nominalism. Or they've been blinded by wealth and comfort into wretched, pitiable worldliness. To these seven churches, John writes each a short letter which is prophecy in its most perfect expression. The exact words of Jesus, the living one, the one who was dead but now is alive forever and ever, the one who holds the keys of death and Hades, the one who holds in his hands the churches of the cities of the world, knowing perfectly and intimately their context and character. Each of these seven churches has its own identity and story in time and place, yet and nevertheless, each of these letters is of enormous significance to every single Christian ever, everywhere, for each of them will end with, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Each of these churches is experiencing some form of tribulation, trial, difficulty, challenge, and yet a greater trial is on the way. So in order to deal with the present and future difficulties, they're going to need a reality check. After this I looked... And there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Uh, this is the voice of Jesus. Uh, see chapter 1, verse 10. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Uh, well, uh, four times in the book of Revelation, John describes himself as being in the Spirit. 
For John, this means some kind of unusual, overwhelming experience of the manifest presence and activity of God. When John is in the spirit, he is in his awareness, simply no longer on Patmos Island, but somewhere altogether very different. Does that mean that he was transported there physically? Or that he was in some kind of trance or waking dream? We cannot say. Neither can Paul, who had experiences like that too. He writes in 2 Corinthians, he talks about one of his own experiences of being, quote, caught up to paradise, unquote. And hearing, quote, unquote, inexpressible things. Saying, whether it was in the body or apart from the body, I do not know. But God knows. For John, being in the spirit means God opening his eyes to something new, something seen in terms of a visual experience, something that allows him to see, that is, understand, in new ways. Something mind-blowing. And here we are, suddenly, in the heavenly throne room, the center of all centers. Throne is a key word in our text. It appears 12 times. It's all about the throne. What is a throne? It's where the king sits. It's where all power and authority reside. It's the seat and source of power and authority. Who sits on this throne? Verse 3. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, or carnelian. A rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Well, the one who sits upon the throne is unmistakably God, but there's little by way of physical description of his appearance. In chapter 1, Jesus was described in very great detail. One like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, a gold sash across his chest, hair white like wool, white as snow, eyes like blazing fire, feet like bronze, glowing red hot, voice like a loud trumpet, like the sound of rushing waters, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. But now, with respect to the appearance of the one seated on the throne, all we get is an appearance like jasper and carnelian stone. Like is another tremendously important word in this text and in the book of Revelation as a whole. It occurs nine times, sorry, eight times in our text today, so frequently indeed that NIV blanks some of these occurrences in order to not, I guess, sound repetitive. Jasper and carnelian are both red stones. The first and last of the 12 stones upon the chest of the high priest in Exodus 28. And at the end of Revelation, the new Jerusalem will be described as shining with the glory of God like jasper, clear as crystal. Like jasper, but jasper is not clear. It's opaque. A rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Another somewhat baffling image. The rainbow was given to Noah after the flood as a covenant sign, a sign of the promised protection and mercy of God, an image of grace. But a rainbow usually is an ark. This one presumably is circular. And it shone like an emerald, which is green. 
Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. Who, who were these elders? Many possible answers. For two reasons, we can presume that they are human beings in the presence of God. The word elder, presbyteros, otherwise only ever refers to human beings who are seniors in terms of year, years or authority or both. And in our text, they're contrasted with non-human, angelic living beings. But their role in the rest of the book, and they make quite frequent appearances, is angel-like. Who are they? Are they the 12 sons of Jacob and the 12 apostles? Possibly. But probably, indeed, representatives of the people of God under Moses and then in Christ. Verse 5, from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also, in front of the throne was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. Um, in the Old Testament, the image of a violent thunderstorm is often used to represent the terrifying manifest presence of God. Flashes of lightning, thunderbursts, rain, black clouds and thick darkness, hail, a terrible demonstration of overwhelming natural power as somehow the right way to depict overwhelming supernatural power. The phrase, the seven spirits of God, is mysterious although it is a description of the Holy Spirit that occurs three times in the book of Revelation. The standard interpretation is that the Holy Spirit is being referred to as the sevenfold spirit in reference to an oracle of the prophet Isaiah wherein he describes the Holy Spirit in seven ways as the spirit of the Lord and of wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and fear of the Lord. I'm not convinced that that's all there is to it. But beyond what I've said, we cannot speculate. Continuing. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures. And they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Again, the word like signals to us that language ultimately fails to completely describe what was seen. If something is like a lion, it begs the question, in what way was it like a lion? And in what way was it not like a lion? We don't know, except I've never seen a lion with six wings. Or covered in eyes, for that matter. But we don't know. Again, what, 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 what does this mean? Possibly representative, all living creatures as understood by the ancient world, are they being represented? Possibly four-legged and two-legged, wild and domestic, land and sky? 
or maybe four living creatures equating the four corners of the earth, maybe, or perhaps representative of might, the lion, representative of strength, the ox, representative of wisdom, the man, representative of speed, the eagle. Possibly, again, that's speculation. Covered in eyes? Representative, I guess, of being all-seeing creatures, creatures who understand. And day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. The four living creatures are in constant, unending praise and worship and adoration. And the foundational, fundamental act of true worship is the declaration of God's holiness. The threefold holy, holy, holy is an emphatic declaration of the perfection of God's holiness. And then comes the threefold description of his eternality. There never was, nor ever will be, a time when we cannot speak of God in past, present, and future tenses. We can always speak of God in past, present, and future tenses because he is without beginning or end. God always was holy, always is holy, and always will be holy. This begs the question, the inconceivably important question, what is holiness? Well, holiness, I guess, is the perfection of God's being in every conceivable way. This may include his unsurpassable beauty, majesty, power, and wisdom. But wherever his holiness is proclaimed, it is the moral perfection of his character that tends to be in view. This means that God is unimpeachably perfect in all of his words, in all of his judgments, and in all of his actions all of the time. Now, wherever other gods or goddesses are proclaimed, whether the false gods of human religion or the idols of secularism, Many wonderful things are said of those so-called gods. Their ability to save, their power, their might, their wisdom, their mercy and compassion and kindness, even perhaps their forgiving nature. But what is never, ever proclaimed is their holiness. They are never proclaimed as being holy. Sacred, yes, sure, but holy, no. And that's because the demons behind all such false worship are themselves not holy, and they hate holiness. The, the holiness of God, the holiness of God can be mysterious to human beings until we experience it for ourselves, and then we understand this, this manifest, tangible quality of God that can be utterly overwhelming. Suddenly we get it. <laughs> he is holy, and I'm not. Suddenly we see how the perfect holiness of God cannot coexist with anything that is unholy. And 
how we understand. Suddenly we experience the holiness of God as an inherent, tangible quality that will destroy us, except that we find mercy. Isaiah experienced the holiness of Jesus in the temple. Peter experienced the holiness of God on a fishing boat. Paul experienced the holiness of Jesus on the road to Damascus. And ever since, human beings have been experiencing the holiness of God at times when the gospel is proclaimed, the Holy Spirit is there in power, and folk realize that they need to surrender their lives to Jesus in a hurry to receive the forgiveness that's on offer, and therefore to serve him in holiness all of their days. Or face justified destruction. That's the power of God's holiness. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. Given that the four living creatures are constantly worshipping God and we're pushed in our minds to imagine uh, the 24 elders constantly falling off their thrones onto their faces before the one who sits on, on, the, on the throne, taking off their crowns, offering their words of praise before we presume them retaking their seats and beginning the process all over again. An unending eternal cycle. It's not something that's easy to imagine before it becomes either comical or farcical. But this is a revelation, not an explanation. It's a revelation of heaven that communicates what it needs to without being an explanation, something that serves to satisfy our curiosity or make complete sense of it. Again, things in threes. The Lord God is worthy to receive glory and honor and power. Overlapping ideas, but not identical. We've suddenly got numbers on the screen. Thank you. <clears throat> glory. The Hebrew word for glory in the Old Testament means heaviness, having substance. God has weight and value and substance beyond measure. Glory also suggests radiant beauty, awesome beauty. Glory also suggests recognition of being worthy of honor. Honor, right recognition of real superiority. All authority and power belong to him. Power, every decision and the means to make those decisions manifest belong to him. Why is, why is God worthy to receive these three things? Three reasons. For he created all things, and by your will they were created, and by your will they have their existence. Yes, three ways of almost saying the same thing, but not identical. But this is the center of all centers. 
all living beings, all creatures, have their meaning and identity and purpose in bringing honour and glory and praise and power to their one and only Creator. This is our meaning and purpose. It is the centre of all possible centres. We have no independent existence, nor meaning beyond his existence and meaning. And worship is the right response. But in order for us to understand the significance of what we're reading today, let us, as a thought experiment, consider what it might have meant for Jesus to have bowed down and worshipped Satan when Christ was tempted in the wilderness. And he was tempted. In other words, he felt the full attractiveness of this enticement. And humanly speaking, we can understand why. I mean, just, just for goodness sake, just bow down and say a few nice things about him and affirm whatever he wants, firming, and, and then you're in charge. And you can do what you want to do with all those kingdoms and all that splendor. And after all, we're all a bit partial to a little bit of splendor now and then. No, a little bit of splendor, what harm can that do? And, and you can use your power. Now that you've got all these kingdoms, you can, you can do good, right? You can heal everyone you want to heal, and, and, and there can be justice. And, and look, cannot the end just occasionally justify the means? But Jesus and Satan know what worship actually is. If, if Jesus bows down and worships Satan in that first instance, it won't end there. Because worship is obedience. And possibly even more importantly, worship is imitation. Jesus if he worships Satan, will be committing himself to the imitation of Satan. And he will have to repent of any thoughts, words, and actions that aren't satanic. Lying and murdering, sooner or later, will be high on the agenda if Satan becomes Jesus' father and Jesus his son. So too, when we bow down and worship God, we are equipped and ready to serve him. We are ready for the imitation of Christ, having centered ourselves on the center of centers. For when God calls someone to serve him, it often begins with a vision of heaven, a vision of God, a revelation and experience of his holiness. Think Moses, who spent 40 days and 40 nights in the presence of God on top of Mount Sinai, or Isaiah in the temple in Isaiah 6, or Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 1, or Jesus, who saw heaven open and the Spirit descend upon him bodily and heard the voice of God, or Peter, who experienced the holiness of Jesus whilst in a fishing boat. Or Paul, who met the risen Lord and fell off his donkey, blind. Such visions prepare us for what will follow. 
Moses, centered and equipped, ready to deal with the mess of tents below Mount Sinai and with the project of building a model of heaven and earth. Isaiah, centered and equipped, ready to spend a lifetime preaching a gospel of judgment and salvation that would make him deeply unpopular with almost everyone and in the end lead to his death. Jesus, centered and equipped, ready for 40 days and 40 nights without food or companionship. Peter, centered and equipped, ready for the hard labor of being a fisherman of people, a feeder of lambs. So to Paul, over whom our Lord Jesus spoke, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and to their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So to now John to the seven churches and also to all of us, this vision of heaven in order that we might respond with worship and be ready and equipped. For John has a lot more to show us. And much of it will be difficult and confronting. Let us therefore approach God's throne with confidence so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let us likewise worship God in his holiness, that we might be equipped and ready and centered on the center of all centers, ready for Monday morning, wherein we'll be called to serve and imitate the Holy One of Israel, seen most perfectly in Jesus of Nazareth, rather than the gods and goddesses, the idols of the nations. And when they ask us, what makes your God so special? We can answer, my God is a holy God. And when they say, I don't know what that means, we can answer, correct. But let me show you Jesus. And let us therefore start each day by declaring the holiness of God, by worshipping him, even if perhaps only for a minute in the shower or in our hearts on the train, worshipping him every morning and every night. This is our foundational act of being a human being, the declaration of God's holiness. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Holy, holy, holy. No matter my circumstances, in want or in plenty, in pain or in comfort, in approval or in persecution, every word, every judgment, every action of yours is perfect all of the time. For you are holy. And let us this morning likewise, in prayer, get rid of everything in our lives in a hurry that is not holy. All greed, sexual immorality, lust, grudges, anger, slander, gossip, backbiting, grumbling, and unforgiveness. That's not holy. It will not stand in his presence. For today we have visited the holy of holies, the center of all centers. And everything else in our lives must conform and follow from this in order that the throne room of God may be our beginning and our end. And the Lord be with you all. Amen.
As we continue to reflect on what Stephen um, has said, we're going to stand together and sing the hymn, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Would you like to stand and join us? Thank mm-hmm. you. 